tonight we're starting Leviticus. Tonight we're starting Leviticus, all about the animal sacrifices of Israel, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the burnt offering, slit in the throat, gutting out the animals, all of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. And you know, I love a good sermon illustration. And so tonight, we're very excited. You can be seated, by the way. We're very excited. We, we are starting a, a new book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. And tonight, we've got a lamb. It's about to eat through the skin. And that was a really bad joke. Hey, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Leviticus. Don't forget, ladies, there is a ladies' night out tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, here at Calvary Chapel. It's going to be a great, great time, great Bible study, great fellowship. Hope you'll come out for that. Leviticus chapter 1. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you encourage our hearts as we go through these important chapters of Scripture. Help us to see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him before. Lord, cast a, a light on his nature, on his character, on his work that perhaps we've never seen nor appreciated before. Help us, Lord, as we work our way through this passage tonight and through this book. Give us wisdom. Fill our minds with your truth. Give our hearts a vision of your love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just recently, while on vacation, I made an interesting discovery. I turned on the food channel. Now, I knew it existed because I had seen it advertised. But it was something that I never thought that I would watch. Never in my wildest imagination did I ever think that you could actually be entertained by watching someone prepare food. But I got hooked. Hey, the Food Channel provides something that, that really concerns everyone, actually. The Food Channel proves that food is the universal language. People in all cultures from all time periods relate to food. Every human being alive 
is interested in food, which is why I think God chose food to communicate some of his most important lessons. He chose barbecue to communicate to us some subjects that are very important to us. You see, nothing is more vital to us than our forgiveness. And the sacrificial system that God devised for Israel taught the Hebrews and us today strategic lessons about the severity of our sin, about the depth of God's amazing grace and the sacrifice of his son Jesus. The word Leviticus means pertaining to the Levites. And the tribe of Levi were the people that God chose to carry out the various offerings and sacrifices. In order to minister in the tabernacle, you needed the right genes. Levi genes. The first seven chapters of Leviticus describe the five major Old Testament sacrifices. Here they are. The burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And note up front the relevance of these sacrifices. They all speak to us of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate sacrifice. They speak to us ultimately of his death on the cross. At Jesus' crucifixion, his death put away from us all sin, from all times, for all people. In fact, shortly after the crucifixion, in 32 AD, the Levitical system was completely shut down. No sacrifices were offered any longer. The Roman army rose up against the Jews and destroyed the temple, the only place where a legitimate sacrifice could be offered. Obviously, as far as a practical institution was concerned, the cross made the book of Leviticus obsolete. Since Jesus, animal sacrifices have no longer been needed. In Christ Jesus, he has put an end to all sacrifices except his own. And yet, the book of Leviticus as a picture, as a portrait of the work of Jesus, is still extremely valuable. In fact, you'll discover every detail of these sacrifices casts a light on another facet of the marvelous work of Jesus on the cross. And for that reason, Leviticus is a rich book. Well, Exodus closes with the construction of the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice. Now Leviticus takes up this subject of the administration of the sacrifices. And so verse 1 begins. Now the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish which is a perfect description of the perfect sacrifice. Remember, Jesus was certainly a male without blemish. And he shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Notice the burnt offering was not a required sacrifice. It was a voluntary sacrifice. In fact, you gave the burnt offering of your own free will. It's interesting, at his trial, when Jesus refused to answer Pilate, that egotistical Roman procurator threatened Jesus. He said, do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? 
And that's when Jesus answered him. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Hey, Jesus was not Pilate's prisoner. He went to the cross of his own volition, of his own free will. He was a prisoner of the will of God and a free will offering for us. Now understand there were actually three animal sacrifices. Chapter 1 covers the burnt offering, which was more God-centered. It was offered in order to bring pleasure to God, while the sin offering and the trespass offering were more man-centered. The purpose was to bring about man's forgiveness. The burnt offering pleased God. The sin offering forgave man. Verse 4 tells us, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Now here's an important principle. The principle of transference or substitution. In other words, the death of the one on behalf of the other. Reminds me of a picture I saw once in the Chicago Sun-Times. It occurred several years ago. A couple were sitting at a table. They were kissing. And the caption of the photo said, Roderick Henson gets a smack from Jacqueline Nash. And here's why. After he served her three-day jail sentence for possession of an unregistered gun, Jacqueline had failed to register a handgun. And so Henson served his girlfriend's sentence. The judge allowed the substitution. God also allows substitutions. In God's sacrificial system, the lamb became the person's substitute. The lamb died in the place of the person. And this is the mechanics of our salvation. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die in order for sin to be atoned for. When we confess Jesus as our Lord, we are putting our hands on his head as the substitute. He becomes our substitute. He dies in our place. Now notice too in verse 4, this word atonement. It's the translation of the Hebrew word kafar, which literally means covering. God judges sin. One day God will pour out his wrath and his judgment on this wicked world. And in that day, what will be covering you? When my son was 11 years old, he went on a school field trip to an outdoor festival. And it was a rainy day, and he asked if he could carry an umbrella. Now, if you've raised boys, you know that's a strange request for an 11-year-old male. Boys that age would just as soon get wet. In fact, they would prefer getting wet than they would carrying an umbrella. Well, it turned out he wanted to walk around the festival with an 11-year-old girl. And he thought that she would be more inclined to walk with him if he was carrying an umbrella. When he came back, I asked him how it went. And sadly, he said the umbrella wouldn't open, and all day long he tried to get that thing open, but he never did. Hey, when you stand before a holy God and face judgment, it will be nice to know that you've got an umbrella that will open, something that will cover you from God's judgment. Understand, Old Testament sacrifices were a temporary covering for sin. God accepted the sacrifice, but eventually it had to be repeated, and then repeated again, and repeated again, and over and over. In essence, the sacrifice produced a probation. You were spared from sin until the sacrifices was due again. 
The sacrifice of Jesus is so amazing because it earns for us not a probation, but a permanent pardon. It's a once and for all sacrifice. In Christ, we are covered once and for all, for all time. Thank God. Verse 5. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now today when we come to worship God, we sing songs and we pray and we listen to a Bible study and we shake each other's hand and we go home. But in the tabernacle, to be close with God, you had to butcher a bull. You had to gut a goat. Some of you were squeaming when you came in tonight. Does he really have a real lamb here? I tried to get a real lamb. But the game ranch down here is kind of stingy with their lambs. But I mean, imagine us coming in. Imagine a blood being, a, a goat being slaughtered. A bull being sacrificed. Blood getting splattered everywhere. That was Old Testament worship. You see, in the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, really, forgiveness at any time has always been expensive. Forgiveness is expensive. It costs someone his life. The wages of sin is death. Thus, forgiveness required the death of an animal sacrifice, an innocent animal. And forgiveness was all about sacrifice. In fact, the key phrase in the book of Leviticus, you might jot this down and refer to it later, is chapter 17, verse 11. It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. There you have it. By the first century A.D., after 1,400 years of blood-soaked sacrifices, the Hebrews, I guess you could say, were graduates of the Levitical system. They understood the significance of a sacrifice, and thus when John the Baptist pointed to our Lord Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, everyone understood. Verse 6, And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. This is what the Roman torturers did to Jesus. When they scourged him with that whip and turned his back into ground hamburger, they literally skinned him alive. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Remember, Jesus too was laid on the wood, was he not? The wood of the cross. Then the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar, but he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, in contrast to the sin offering, the sin, uh, in contrast, the sin offering, we'll get to this later, was eaten by the priest. It was sort of like a divine barbecue. Part of it was burned to the Lord. Part of it was eaten by the priest. The animal was butchered, and then the parts were divvied up. That was the sin offering. But the burnt offering wasn't eaten. It was burned on the altar. It was totally consumed. As was Jesus, I might say. Jesus died a brutal death. He held nothing back. In fact, the cross demonstrated Jesus' total dedication to our forgiveness. Verse 10 tells us, If his offering is of the flocks 
of the sheep or of the goats as a burnt sacrifice. He shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's sons. Shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar, and he shall cut it into its pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar, but he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. You've got to imagine yourself sitting there watching the food chain. As all this preparation is going on for these sacrifices. Verse 13 concludes it. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Now, now we talked about the visual. When you walked up, the blood being splattered, blood everywhere. But can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine the smell emanating from the, from the tabernacle? Probably was quite a delightful smell. Smelt like barbecue. Smelt like driving into Sonny's parking lot. Did you know that the average nose can pick out about 2,000 different smells? That's pretty good. In fact, if you have an above average sniffer, and I don't know how you tell this, but if you have an above average nose, you can do better than that. It can discern 4,000 smells. God made the human nose a very sensitive instrument. What are your favorite smells? I love the smell of fresh honeysuckle. Man, it's so good. I love the smell of a new baseball glove, the leather on a new baseball glove. Or meat barbecuing over an open fire. Women tend to like perfumes and the smell of flowers. In fact, I saw a sign in a florist shop one time. Bring flowers home to your wife. She must be mad at you about something. <laughs> hey, it probably never hurts to bring flowers to your wife. But what are God's favorite smells? Well, here God loves the aroma of a sacrifice. And though we're no longer required to offer animal sacrifices to God, there are some New Testament sacrifices that you and I, as Christians, can offer to God. For example, Romans 12, verse 1. It tells us that rather than a carcass, today God would prefer a living sacrifice. God is no longer into dead sacrifices. He wants a living sacrifice. You can give your body to God as a living sacrifice. Hebrews 13, verse 15 encourages us, to continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Our worship and praise is a sacrifice. In Philippians 4 verse 18, Paul calls the financial contribution that you make to his work a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Your tithes and offerings are a sacrifice. Good works are also a sacrifice to God. Hebrews 13, verse 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Put it all together, and we can give to God a lot of sacrifices. We can give Him our body, our praise, our money, our good works. These are all ways that we can fill God's nostrils with sweet smells. Verse 14. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, 
then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. Now this was a provision for the poor. A lamb could be quite costly, but everyone could afford a pigeon. This too was symbolic of Jesus. He was the innocent turtle dove who flew from heaven to earth and nested in a tree, a tree of wood that we call the cross. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar. And remember the ring that's set on Jesus' head? The only crown he ever wore was a crown of thorns. And he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. In other words, if you couldn't afford to barbecue a lamb, you could offer God some wings. <laughs> it's true. Either way, the key is verse 13. The priest shall bring it all. Did you know that God wants all? You might be an expensive lamb. You might be a cheap pigeon. But you know what? What God wants, he doesn't care whether you're a lamb or a pigeon. He just wants all of you. He wants your whole life, not bits and pieces. It is so true. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. It reminds me of the little boy who was sitting in church one Sunday when his dad handed him the offering plate as it was being passed. The little boy grabbed it. He put it on the floor right next to the pew. And then, he, and then he stood up and he stood right in the offering plate. And his daddy gasped. He said, son, what are you doing? And that's when the little boy said, Dad, we learned in Sunday school this morning that we're supposed to give ourselves to God. Again, today, God is into living sacrifices, not dead carcasses. God is pleased when we give to him our arms and our legs, our eyes and our ears, our hands and our feet, our minds and our muscles. I read where the scientists at Illinois Tech have found that human beings are not only good sniffers, we're also little stinkers. It's true. The average person gives off at least 36 different body odors. 36? You are a little stinker. Add up the combinations and that's over 100 different scents. And the researchers at Illinois Tech, they're developing ways of identifying people by their smell. Or as they call it, their scent prints. You have a scent print. Well, if God took your scent print, the aroma that comes from your life, what sacrifices are you offering to him? Would he be pleased? Would he consider your life a sweet aroma, a living sacrifice? Chapter 2 brings us to the grain offering, which was the only bloodless sacrifice. It spoke of service rather than the forgiveness of sin. I'm sure you realize that our good works and charitable deeds are completely unable to save us. We know that. It's been said, being good will keep you out of jail, but it sure won't keep you out of hell. 
Salvation is the result of a blood sacrifice, not a grain offering. And yet once we are forgiven, we're going to want to serve the Lord. The desire of our heart will be to present to Jesus the fruit of our hands, the results of our labor for Him, the grain offering. But just as the grain offering had to be prepared according to specifications, our works please God only when they're carried out in a specific manner. Verse 1 tells us, When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Notice the grain offering is unfit for sacrifice without oil. And of course, throughout the Bible, oil is a symbol of what? The Holy Spirit, right. That means that whatever we do for God always needs to be empowered and motivated and directed by the Holy Spirit. A work done without His influence is nothing but a work of the flesh. We're told He shall bring the grain offering to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Now part of this offering was kept by Aaron and his family. It was their provision. The priest was supported by a portion of the sacrifice that the people gave to God. And we use this same principle today when we pay the pastor. A portion of your offerings are kept so that the pastors and their families can be supported and enables them to serve you and serve the Lord full time. Reading verses 4 through 7 again is like watching the Food Channel. And if you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be a fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. Now evidently, the grain offering could be prepared in one of three ways. Either it was fried in oil or... It was mixed with oil and baked, or it was cooked and then covered with oil. And the symbolism here is extremely significant. For the New Testament teaches us that there are three experiences that we can have with the Holy Spirit. He is with us before we're saved. We are frying in the oil. He comes to dwell in us. Once we give our lives to Christ, the oil then is mixed in to the grain. But then after we're saved, He can come upon us with power. He can anoint us. And the oil is poured out upon the grain. Three experiences, with, in, and upon. And they're symbolized for us here in the grain offering. Whenever we serve in Jesus' name, God wants us to do so under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit. For God to accept our offerings or our good works, they need to be simmered and sautéed and saturated with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And when it is presented to the priest, it shall bring 
he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Verse 11. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. And why? Leaven is a type of sin, remember. Leaven is like pride. It corrupts by puffing up. That's why it's a symbol of sin. For you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. Notice the honey was also forbidden. You see, honey is a sweetener, but honey breaks down at high temperatures. It's, in other words, it's a sweetener that can't stand up to heat and pressure. Honey is similar to the sweetness that we often see in church. On Sunday morning, we're on our best behavior, and we're just sort of prancing around the church, you know, being friendly and wanting to impress people with our sweetness. We want folks to go home and talk about us. Oh, she's so sweet, isn't she? That girl's just a real sweetheart. And we're all about trying to be syrupy and sweet and nice and so forth. But what happens when you put a little heat on that person? What happens when they find themselves under pressure? And suddenly something happens in their life that upsets them. <laughs> Boy, you see their fangs. Hey, the syrupy, sappy, phony sweetness is going to break down. It's like honey. What we need is not sweetness. What we need is the fruits of the Spirit. His joy. His gentleness. His kindness. These are the, the ingredients that can withstand the high temperature, the heat, and the pressure. Verse 12. As for the offering of the first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Salt was a preservative, and so it spoke of longevity. Whenever we bring an offering to God, it should reflect an ongoing commitment. Not just a token, a one-time kind of thing. Let me do this and get God off my back kind of statement. No, whenever we offer a, a sacrifice to God, it should come with salt. It should be a long-term commitment of our love for Him. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire. Green grain represented the freshest. The best. Grain beaten from full heads. That's broken grain. God desires brokenness, doesn't he? He desires our best. He desires a broken heart. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And again, the frankincense, the oil, speaks of the Holy Spirit. In fact, frankincense was used by the priest when he interceded for the people. It was associated with prayer. And as well as the Holy Spirit, all our good works need to be bathed in prayer. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil, with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. 
In chapter 3, the peace offering speaks of communion with God. Now remember, the burnt offering was sacrificed. It was burned up. But the peace offering, only the fat of the animal was laid on the altar. And in Scripture, the fat always symbolizes abundance. Remember that. The fat symbolizes abundance, excess. You see, God knows you have a demanding job. God knows you work long hours. God knows you have bills to pay. But what about the abundance of your time and your money and your effort? What about the excess? Well, we're told in chapter 3, verse 14, all the fat is the Lord's. Are you and I willing to take the surplus of our life and spend it on God? Does the Lord possess your fat, your extra? He should. The peace offering was the only sacrifice that the person made that he could also eat. In fact, it was sliced three ways. The person who offered the sacrifice ate a portion. The priest ate a portion. And then the fat was offered to the Lord. And it was all a symbol of fellowship and peace among all three who had offered the sacrifice. Their peace between each other, between the worshiper, between the priest, between God. In essence, they were all eating together and all at peace with one another. They were enjoying each other's fellowship. Verse 1. When his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering, if he offers it of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle the blood all around on the altar. Then he shall offer from the sacrifice of the peace offering an offering made by fire to the Lord. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails. The two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks. And the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys he shall remove. And Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. In other words, God got the guts. He got the fat. The fat and the entrails were sacrificed to God. Notice, God was offered the fat near the flanks. The other day, a group of us who, the group that recently went to Israel, we had a reunion over at the Tobin's house. And Dave cooked up some Boston butt. It was the flanks. And you talk about good taste in barbecue. I mean, that meat was scrumptious. It melted in your mouth. It's interesting. Usually the fattier portions are the tastiest. But we know that they're also the most dangerous to our health, are they not? We know that the fat carries cholesterol and clogs the arteries. And I'm sure the Israelites thought, God isn't fair. He gets all the Boston butt. God, you're depriving us of the tasty beef. And I'm sure they assumed that God was spoiling their fun, that God was raining on their parade. Why does God get the fat? In reality, though, God was keeping them 
from what would harm them. He didn't want their arteries clogged. He didn't want them dying of a heart attack at an early age. And when will we learn this lesson? When God says no to us, no to sex before marriage, no to pornography, no to promotion at any price, no to a lifestyle that hoards money and refuses to give to God. When God says no to these things, He's doing so to save us from spiritual cholesterol. He doesn't want lust or fame or greed to cause in us heart disease. Yes, the fat in life is some tasty stuff. And his sex and drugs and alcohol and all these things, are these things tasty? Well, for a time they are. Nobody's arguing that. But God says no to the fat because he's looking out for our best interests. He sees dangers that we're not aware of. Therefore, he said no. Verse 6. If his offering as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord is of the flock, whether male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb as his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. These instructions for a lamb are similar to those in, chapter, in verses 1 through 5 that applied to the bull or the cow of the herd. Verse 12, and if his offering is a goat, and again the instructions are the same, if you want to eat a meal or fellowship, have a meal or fellowship with the Lord, he's happy to join you, and he doesn't really care what you're serving, whether it's a bull or a lamb or even a goat, but there's one prohibition, verse 17. This shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations and all your dwellings. You shall eat neither fat nor blood. And why were you not supposed to eat the fat? Because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And why were you not supposed to drink the blood? Well, the blood was for the remission of sin. Chapter 4. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and does any of them, and notice you're responsible for even the sins you've committed that you didn't realize you had committed. Notice that. If a person sins unintentionally, my kids excuse themselves all the time. I didn't mean to ball goes sailing through my garage window but I didn't mean to but it doesn't really matter whether you meant to or not God holds us responsible for our actions as well as our motives even an unintentional sin necessitated a sacrifice and this was the sin offering he says if the anointed priest sins and, and notice this this is important he is the anointed priest the anointing, the power of the Holy Spirit is upon this man. But he still sins. Isn't that interesting? Samson was a classic case. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve. But that anointing alone didn't necessarily produce a godly character. My daughter called me up the other day. She says, oh, I found this boy. Oh, he, he loves God. He, he serves God. 
I said, Natalie, Samson served God too. Would you want to be his boyfriend? His girlfriend, I'm sorry. Would you want to be his girlfriend? I mean, just because you serve God, just because you're anointed with the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean you're going to be a godly person. Now, this young man may end up being a godly person, but I'm just saying, that alone is not enough to tell. You've got to look at the character of the person. He says, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, let them offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull. This was the same sacrifice offered when the nation sinned. Without blemish as a sin offering, he shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Again, it was the principle of transference. The bull was slaughtered in the place of the sinner. Verse 5, then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar on the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. The blood was spread three places. In front of the Holy of Holies, on the altar of incense, at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Those three places. And you ask, why those three places? And I can say to you, I have no idea. But know this, blood was splattered everywhere. Inside, outside, this was a bloody place, this tabernacle. You know, not too long ago, I read some interesting statistics. You know, Americans have cultivated quite a taste for Mexican food. In fact, in 1996, $1.6 billion was spent on salsa, refried beans, and taco shells. But researchers have learned that what most Americans want is not really Mexican food. They want a watered-down version of Mexican food. Companies like Old El Paso and Pace now offer cool and mild sauces. Industry observers call this gringo food. One expert writes this, the gringoization of Mexican food will continue. In 20 years, you won't even recognize what they'll be calling Mexican food. Now, I am afraid that in many quarters of the church today, this same phenomenon has taken place with Christianity. We have watered down, we have Americanized and sanitized a core truth of the gospel, and that is that the wages of sin is death. There was a time when Christianity's critics ridiculed it by calling it a bloody religion or a slaughterhouse faith. They scoffed at the gospel's insistence for a blood atonement. They mockingly labeled us primitive and barbaric. They made fun of believers swimming in a sea of plasma and dog paddling among the clots. And yet you rarely hear this kind of criticism today. And it's because the church has in a large part done to the gospel what Pillsbury has done to Mexican food.
We have diluted it. We have watered it down. There are presentations of the gospel today that hide the blood and the pain and the loss to make it palatable to American taste buds. Folks have removed or downplayed the parts of the gospel that are offensive to modern sensibilities. And the cross has become a footnote for many people. In essence, we have created a gringo gospel. This is why we need to study the book of Leviticus. Do you see the conditioning and the training this book provided the people? They knew that a sacrifice was needed. It was instinctive to them by the time John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need to read about the blood sprinkled on the veil and on the altar's horns and at the base of the altar. For the wages of sin is death. The life is in the blood. So forgiveness requires a sacrifice. Hebrews 9 verse 22 puts it. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. You remember Adam and Eve when they sinned. They tried to cover up their guilt with what? With fig leaves. But their designer fruit of the looms wouldn't do it. And God in turn replaced the fig leaves with wraps, with animal skins. And you don't get an animal skin without killing the thing. It don't offer up its skin voluntarily. And so from the very beginning, God covered sin with a blood-letting sacrifice. Adam understood this need, as did Noah when he exited the ark, as did Abraham who was always building altars and offering sacrifices. And now here in Leviticus, God is categorizing and codifying these various sacrifices and he is providing prescriptions for their execution. But don't miss the main point. Sacrifice was always necessary for forgiveness. Guys, forgiveness is expensive. Verses 8 through 10 tell us that the sin offering was cut up like the peace offering. The guts and the fat were offered to God. They were burned on the altar of burnt offering. Verse 11 tells us, But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. And in Hebrews 13, verse 12, we're told that this detail actually speaks of Jesus. It was fulfilled when he was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, outside the camp, if you will. The hill called Golgotha was just north of the Damascus Gate, right outside the walls. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, then the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the same procedure is followed. The blood is sprinkled on the veil, then spread on the horns of the altar, then poured out at the base of the altar. 
The fat is burned up on the altar of burnt offering, and the rest of the carcass is burned outside the camp. The only difference with national sin is that the elders laid their hands on the head of the sacrifice. The elders took responsibility for the nation. You elders that are in the crowd tonight, you have a heavy responsibility. You're responsible for our church, for the rest of the people, for loving them, for standing before the Lord on behalf of them. Now, if the priest sins, or if the nation sins, a bull is used as the sacrifice. But if a civil leader sins, or if a common person sins, they're to offer a goat or a lamb. And the blood is spread on the horns of the altar of incense and at the base of the altar of burnt offering. But notice, it's not spread, as the others were, at the veil before the Holy of Holies. And again, I have no idea why this is. But there could be a practical purpose. You see, there were a lot more commoners than there were priests. And thus, to save time and effort, they probably just cut back the ritual. And they only went two places rather than three. And hey, understand, we're talking about the sin of politicians, civil leaders. And if politicians were then what they are like now, these poor priests, they would have spent all their time at the veil with that blood. It reminds me of the guy who, who got to heaven and he saw this clock. And he realized that there was a whole room full of clocks. And there was a clock for every person on earth. But he noticed the hands of each of the clocks sort of spun around in different, different speeds. And he was told that every time you tell a lie, your clock moves forward just a little. And so he looks over and he happens to see George W. Bush's clock. And he notices the hands are moving, but they're moving slowly. And the angel explains to him, he tells him, he says, well, you know, President Bush, he's trying to do his best. He's trying to be as honest as he can. And then he looks over and he, he looks around, he can't find it. And he, he says, hey, where's John Kerry's clock? And, and that's when the angel said, well, it's up in the office right now. The hands are moving so fast, they're using it as a ceiling fan. <laughs> now, hey, I'm not against, I, hey, John Kerry's probably a nice guy, don't. Don't hold, hold that against me. If anybody gives this tape to John Kerry, tell him I love him. <laughs> Chapter 5 deals with the trespass offering. The Hebrew word translated sin means to miss the mark. We sin when we try to please God and fall short. Whereas a trespass is a deliberate act of rebellion. We're not trying to hit the mark and miss. We've got it in our hearts to rebel. We trespass against God when we cross a boundary that God has established. You know, you violate a no trespass sign when you go where you don't belong. It, 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 to trespass is to step outside your boundaries. And, and this is what it means to trespass against God or to trespass against another person. A trespass occurs when I go beyond my boundaries, when I step outside of God's will, or when I infringe upon your rights. I've trespassed. Verse 1 tells us, If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, 
whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. In other words, if you know the truth and you take an oath to tell the truth, but if you refuse and you remain silent, then you have trespassed against the truth. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether it is the carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean livestock or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and he is unaware of it, and, and unclean creeping things, that's not politicians. And, and he is unaware of it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness. Whatever uncleanness with which a man may be defiled, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty. Touching, un, touching human uncleanness is when Pastor James has to go down into the septic tank to get the thing unstopped. We're going to talk uh, more about ceremonial uncleanness later in the book of Leviticus. It, this is a big deal, and there's several chapters that, that deal with it, and you'll find it very interesting. Or if a person swears, speaking thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, whatever it is that a man may pronounce by an oath, and he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, then he shall be guilty in any of these matters. Notice the examples that God uses of a trespass all have to do with infringements on the truth. Now, you, now you would think God would mention trespasses against sexual boundaries or against private property or trespasses against a person's reputation. Those are the things we think of as trespasses. Instead, he's concerned with lies and with the failure to tell the truth. I, I believe God knows that all morality starts with a respect and an adherence for the truth. All morality begins with integrity. Sexual sin, thievery, slander all begin when you entertain a lie. That's how it starts. So he addresses that. Verse 5, and it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb or a kid of the goats is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin. If he is not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord for his trespasses which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons one is a sin offering and the other as a burn offering. In other words, your lack of money doesn't let you off the hook. If you've sinned, you still have to offer some sacrifice. If you can't afford a lamb, then bring a pigeon or a turtle dove. Sin has to be dealt with. It's an issue that we cannot sidestep, we cannot excuse away. And he shall bring them to the priest who shall offer that which is of that is for the sin offering first and wring off its head from its neck but shall not divide it completely. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar and the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And he shall offer the second as a burnt offering according to the prescribed manner so the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed and it shall be forgiven him. But if he is not able to bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, if he's dirt poor, 
Then he who sins shall bring for his offering one-tenth of an ephah, the fine flour, as a sin offering. I mean, God's mercy goes even further. I mean, anybody can afford a pigeon, but, but if you're that cheap and you can't even afford a pigeon, well, then bring a little flour. One-tenth of an ephod was about three quarts. That wasn't much. He says, he shall, not, he shall put no oil on it, nor shall he put frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And notice the terminology. It goes kind of back and forth, doesn't it, between the sin offering and the trespass offering. And I think it's because they're so similar. They were very similar. Leviticus 7, verse 7, as a matter of fact, says, The trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them both. Then he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It is a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin that he has committed in any of these matters, and it shall be forgiven him. The rest shall be the priests as a grain offering. And in the remainder of chapters 5 and 6, the trespass offering is associated with crimes against other people. And along with this sacrifice, restitution was paid to the victim. In these cases, when you sinned against someone else, it wasn't just enough to gain God's forgiveness. The damages had to be repaid. The remainder of chapter 5 discusses trespasses against the holy things. And this involves sins like shortchanging God on your tithes. Or holding back the firstborn from your flock. Or the first fruits of your crops. And when this happened, you offered a ram as a sacrifice for the sin, but then you paid, then you paid what you owed God, then you paid him an additional 20% for having held them back. Chapter 6 applies to the principle of trespasses against other people. Verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord, by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, and if he has extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it, and swears falsely, and you can imagine in your mind all kinds of scenarios that might fit these descriptions, and any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found, or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. Again, it wasn't enough just to cry out to God for forgiveness. You needed to do the right thing toward the person you had harmed. Restore what you took and then add 20% for the inconvenience you've caused. And you need to do this even if the person you've harmed is your neighbor or a relative or the company where you're employed or the government at tax time. And I think we'll stop right there tonight.
We'll pick up in chapter 6 next go-round.